Okay, Sarah Kronk. Welcome. Hello. Season three of the Personal Branding Podcast. You're the first one on the list. It's an honor to be here. (laughs) Okay, so I think we should set the stage a little bit. How did we find one another? We went through Personal Brand Accelerator the sixth round, I believe, which was over a year ago that I met you. And I think the first time that I saw you, I remember we were going through an interview for PBA. And I remember Sachiko and I were on the phone with you. And then after we got off the phone, I was like, dang, that woman is impressive. I was so blown away by just your composure and how you carried yourself and how poised and well-spoken you were. But not even just those things, also what you've built for yourself, you know, as someone who has founded Generation Spirit, which I'm excited to get into. You've been featured on Oprah. You have done a TEDx talk. You've been featured in People and CNN and being able to hear from your perspective and listen to your story and then getting to know you through PBA has been so exciting. And then when we were thinking of doing season three, of the Personal Branding Podcast, I thought you would be a perfect person to have come on. Thank you. Such a lovely introduction. Yeah, I found you initially through TikTok and had been following you for several months. And you know how sometimes you hit that point with people you follow where it just goes from passive intrigue to I want to know what this person's all about. I want to know how they do what they do and the story behind it. And the timing ended up being really serendipitous because when I did my deep dive on Anna Vittoni, I saw that there was maybe a week left of interviews, a week left to apply for PBA, something like that. And it just felt very stars aligned. And so I applied and within a few weeks... Mm-hmm. I was in my cohort and we were off to the races and it's been the things I learned in PBA have been a huge asset, both to me personally and my business. So very grateful to still be in the PBA universe. Yeah. And you are such a big part of the PBA universe too, because you were still actively creating content, which is something that I think you started doing really consistently within the program, but now you've had a lot of success with TikTok. I think some of your recent videos and your recent series on A Girl in a Rut has really taken off and people have loved watching how you navigate what it's like to be in a rut, how to get out of it, but also how to like just sit in it and be where you are. Can you speak a little to what, how you've approached content creation and TikTok and Instagram since going through PVA, but yeah. Sure. So my professional background is in nonprofit work and specifically disability inclusion. And when I first joined PBA, it was because I felt like I had all these stories to share, experiences of being a young founder, uh, personal experiences, having a sibling with a disability, just everything I've learned over my now 15-year history of doing this work. But I wanted it to come from me personally, not through the lens of my nonprofit brand. And then as I got into PBA and continued to dig into the stories I wanted to tell, I realized that I had a lot I wanted to say that was outside my work life entirely. That was a lot more about my personal life and how I've navigated the challenging pandemic years and my sort of feelings around wanting to regain that sort of innocence and a sense of fun and spontaneity that I feel like so many of us lost during the pandemic. 
So that's what drove me to start creating more personal content on TikTok in particular about this feeling like, okay, we're no longer in pandemic crisis mode. Things have returned to somewhat some sense of normalcy, but we've all lost something along the way. So what does it look like to move forward knowing that nothing will ever be the same again? And it was a really rewarding process because I was able to work through my feelings and really think critically about my behaviors and my thought processes and all of that. And people found it really relatable. So I was, uh, when I first started posting on TikTok, I had not even kidding, 75 followers and one video took off and I ended up getting almost 10 K followers in a single day, Wow! which it, Yeah, (laughs) which was really shocking and a little overwhelming at first, but I have such a supportive community. People are so kind for the most part in the comments. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And it makes me think about, so you you started posting for personal, which you maybe initially, I think, went through PBA for a little bit of both, correct me if I'm wrong, but wanting to support your organization and continue building your organization gener- generation spirit, but also to, again, like you said, find the fun in it and enjoy content creation. And you recently gave a talk to some of the members in PBA, maybe, I don't know, maybe about six months ago on balancing your personal brand with your professional one. So I'm curious to know how you continue to do that, balancing using TikTok to share personal stories and anecdotes and experiences while also still using social media as a tool to grow your organization, which I want to get into more about Generation Spirit soon. Yeah, that's a great question. So my background's a little bit unique. I started working when I for my organization when I was 15 years old. And because of that, I always had a lot of fear around if I don't appear professional and polished and like I know exactly what I'm doing at all times, that no one's going to take me seriously because the truth was I did have no idea what I was doing. I didn't even have my driver's license yet. How could I possibly know how to run a company, right? And I was really figuring things out as I went along, but terrified to reveal that to anyone. So when I started PBA, I think I was still carrying a lot of that with me that I can't show vulnerability. I can't Mm -hmm. show humanity. I can't show the more personal side of things because then people won't take me seriously as a founder, as a professional, all of those things. And so I really wanted to break through that and find space to be able to do both. And I used a couple of helpful tools and exercises. Harvard has one called the, I want to say it's called public image assessment exercise, something like that. But it helps you break down, okay, here's how I want to be perceived by the world around me. And I, for me, it was important to be perceived as competent and intelligent and all of those things. And then I realized that sharing more personal stories about my journey along the way or things that I've struggled with don't necessarily take away from my competence. In Mm -hmm. fact, it can add to it. Here's how I came to know the things that I know. Here's how I learned the things that I learned. And being so hyper-focused on being competent all the time was making me less relatable because I wasn't giving anyone that behind-the-scenes glimpse into how I got to where I was. And frankly, it was through a lot of stumbling. And so it's 
through the years, I've learned that it's actually a strength, not a weakness to be able to offer that more intimate glimpse into the way that we arrive to the places that we arrive to. And that Harvard public image assessment exercise has been one of my go-to tools. I shared it in my PBA presentation, and it's one that I return to time and time again. Yeah, I remember really loving that. And it's so interesting how the things that we're often the most afraid to share, the things that we might might be even harboring shame around, actually, when we share them, it really sets us free. But to your point, it also helps people understand why we do what we do and how we've arrived to the place that we have. And that does make us appear more relatable and more easier to connect with. And thus, I think, easier to trust. Uh, Yeah, I love that. I love the presentation that you shared. And I'm curious to know, too, you're so you're the founder of Generation Spirit and your organization is a national nonprofit focused on breaking down barriers between young people with and without disabilities. And you also created the nation's first inclusive cheerleading team, which is the Pleasant Valley High School Spartan Sparkles. So I want to hear more about what that process was like for you and the story behind how you created it and maybe some of the challenges that you faced in starting your organization. Sure. I know that you were also a former cheerleader, so we are (laughs) uh, kindred spirits in this regard. But yeah, so I went to high school alongside my older brother, Charlie, and the two Mm -hmm. of us are only a year apart. So we've always been really close. Charlie's on the autism spectrum. And when we entered high school together, it became clear that even though he was included in the classroom, that doesn't necessarily solve for the social component of high school, which is such an important, I would argue that the friendships and the activities and all the extra stuff that goes along with our school years are just as important as the academics. And that whole world of high school still seemed very off limits to students like my brother. His experience ended up being transformed dramatically when he was included onto our school's swim team. And I realized that I wanted to do for other students what the swim team had done for him, to give other people with disabilities, a place to belong, people to belong to. So I joined the cheer team as a freshman and right away started to notice how adaptive cheer could be as an activity. If we have five-year-olds enrolled in all-star cheerleading, then certainly we can have it be available to all ability levels at the high school. And I got together with a few members of my team and my coach and just said, hey, let's start a new team that's designed to bring together people with and without disabilities that would be intended to accommodate a wide variety of different skills and challenges. And that's how the sparkles came to be. And then it was a really unexpected journey. We, we had some pushback in the beginning because back in, this was 2007, 2008, adaptive high school sports weren't just rare, they were almost completely unheard of. So like you mentioned, when we started the Sparkles, there wasn't another inclusive cheer team in America. It was very new. And our admins at our school were really worried that it was something that we were going to be into for two weeks and then be like, okay, that was fun. Bye. Like that we were going to flake out on this team. And it actually ended up changing our lives forever and also changing the fabric of our high school forever. So about 
a few months after our debut performance, we had families moving into our school district when their kids were little in the hopes that there would be a spot on the team by the time they were in high school. We ended up having this waiting list and we created this program based on inclusion and we were having to turn people away because the team was already at this point, double the size that it was when we first formed it. And I grew up in a small town in Iowa and I started to think to myself, like, there's nothing special about this one school in this one town in Iowa. So if we can do this here, then other schools should be doing it everywhere. This was just so easy, such a natural, easy thing to do. And so I started Generation Spirit as a high school sophomore in 2009 in the hopes of getting other schools to create inclusive spirit teams. And since then, we've generated more than 235 chapters in 32 states that have directly involved more than 20,000 students with and without disabilities and have expanded our work to include public speaking, giving keynotes and workshops, helping to address the national deficit and disability awareness that we have in this country. And again, break down those barriers between young people with and without disabilities, because I never want anyone to have to experience exclusion the way that my brother did when we were Mm. early on in our high school years. Mm. And I think it was in your TED talk when you mentioned that like the catalyst for this was a student at your high school asked Charlie to come sit at his lunch table with him, right? Was that kind of the beginning of all of it? That's exactly it. Charlie would go to the high school cafeteria every day for lunch Mm -hmm. and get his food and make a lap around the outer edge of the room, just hoping that he could find an entry point or a friendly face. And day after day, nobody acknowledged him and nobody invited him to sit down. And so he would end up eating his lunch in the nurse's office alone. And it was heartbreaking, but the way the school approached it, the way my family approached it was, what are we going to do? It's not like he's being bullied. What's anyone going to do? He doesn't have a bullying problem. He had an invisibility problem. He needed someone to look up and see him. It was like he wasn't even there. And so he did his best to navigate this situation day in, day out. He started to become more and more anxious. He stopped wanting to go to school altogether. And then toward the end of the first quarter, one day out of the blue, this guy, his name's Jared, looked up and saw him and said, you can come sit at my table. He was the captain of the school swim team. And so it was like the swim team table that ended up taking Charlie in and A few months later, they convinced him to join the swim team. And that's how it all happened. It just took that one person to look up, see him and decide to do something about it. And they're still great friends to this day. And we love Jared. Team Jared forever. Team Jared forever. Oh, my God. Did you guys date or something, Jared? I can see you guys together. Oh, my mom (laughs) would have loved that. But no, Jared. Jared actually married his high school sweetheart. He's just for Jared. He's a solid gold human being. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then I'm also, I'm picturing you as a 15 year old girl, you know, your love and your ability to see your brother too, and to be inspired by this event that had, that happened at school was the catalyst for creating Generation Spirit. But I'm also imagining you as this little girl trying to get the word out and trying to, you said you had a goal of creating a hundred different spirit teams across the U.S., 
that's a pretty lofty goal for a young girl at your age. And you also mentioned just having this kind of like beginner's mindset, like how hard could it possibly be to get this done? And so you sent a letter out to 100 different schools, basically asking them to consider creating these spirit teams, correct me if I'm wrong, and you didn't get a word back from any of them. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I start this organization and think this was really easy for us to do at my little high school. So I printed out on my family desktop computer, 100 letters to 100 schools that I had just randomly found on the internet. Like on the weekends, I would just Google schools in California and write down the addresses And so I write this letter directing people to this itty bitty website that we'd put together and saying, hey, we're doing this great thing in Iowa. You should do it in Colorado. You should do it in New York. And of course that didn't work. But in my mind, I'm like a hundred teams, a hundred schools, a hundred letters. I love the confidence. (laughs) I love it. 100% close rate. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. When it's it's sweet. That was the thing that that started it all, but I also really appreciate how audacious I was, how determined I was that when I didn't get any responses back, I was just like, okay, plan B. And yeah, started writing letters to national media outlets. I would be in the dentist office and see that People Magazine had a column called Heroes Among Us with an email address where you could submit your story. And I would go home and I would submit my story. And I had, you have no idea when you do things like that, whether it's going to amount to anything, but People Magazine was the first to reach back out. And after we did the People feature, which was in maybe within four months of founding the organization relatively early in the big scheme of things, I was a junior in high school at that point. Then the producers at ABC News saw the People article, and then the producers at Oprah saw us on ABC National News, and then MTV sees Oprah. Like it just, that's how it it goes from there. And then next thing you're traveling the country, growing a national organization at 15, 16 years old. It felt very Hannah Montana to me at the time, leading this bizarre double life where I'm living in Bettendorf, Iowa as a normal teenager one day. And then jetting off to appear on VH1 the next. Like it was a wild ride. (laughs) And it's also just a testament to when something is meant to happen, it's not even a question of whether or not should I do this. It's just almost like spilling out of you and you just take one step after the other. And it sounds like that's a lot of what you did. And I think the basis of your TED Talk was all about you make a decision you make a decision, and then you go for it. And it sounds like that's what happened. You made this decision to create this organization, you didn't look back, and you continued to take each step that you needed to take without letting the rejection get in the way or the fear get in the way. Then you go on to be, can we talk about the Oprah experience first? Sure. (laughs) Okay, so what was that like? Were you terrified? I would have been so scared. It was a surreal experience from beginning to end. So when I first, when we first got the call from the producers at Oprah, it was to my family's landline phone. So I remember it like I'm sitting at the kitchen table doing my math homework 
the landline rings, I look and it says Harpo Studios on the caller ID, which is Oprah's production company. And we were an Oprah household. So I knew that right away. And like my heart just stopped. And while the phone's still ringing, I'm like, mom, mom, do I answer? And she's like, yes, answer the phone. (laughs) But yeah. And then it was a very elaborate shoot. I had several phone calls with the producers on the front end where they would ask me all kinds of questions about the team and about the work. And, but then they would throw in questions like, who's your favorite pop star right now? What role models does the team really look up to? And so I would tell them, and then they would come and uh, send a film crew to my high school to film a sparkles practice. And at the end of the practice, they would wheel out one of those old school TV carts that we all used to have in our classrooms to play like VHS tapes. And they pop in a tape and it's Miley Cyrus. And she says, hey, Sparkles, it's Miley. I want to invite you to come to my concert in Indianapolis like in three days. And so we're all freaking out. And there's a bus waiting. We have no idea that any of this is happening. Oprah basically just hijacked our lives for a couple of weeks because the next thing we know, the producers are like, yep, the bus is going to pick you up at 6 a.m. from the high school parking lot tomorrow morning. Pack your bags. You're going to go see Miley. And then we would get to the concert venue. And then it would be like, okay, now you're all going to hang out with Miley. And then Miley's going to tell you that you're going to be performing on stage with her for the climb, which is very once in a lifetime kind of experience. And it was just one surprise like that after another throughout the entire shoot. Oprah's team was incredibly generous. Oprah herself was incredibly warm. They like gave us a talk before we were going to shoot the live show where they basically said, don't run up to Oprah on stage and try to hug her. Don't basically don't disrupt the live taping of the show because it's in front of a live studio audience. And so we're all like, okay, be professional because the entire team was going to be on stage, like all of us students with and without disabilities. And I, we get out there, we perform a little cheer and then immediately Oprah comes up to me and puts her arm around me. Wow, Sarah. And in the clip, I still crack up to this day. I you can see that I'm like hyperventilating. Like I look like a golden retriever. I'm Oh my gosh, <laughs> I would be paralyzed. <laughs> yeah, it was wild. And then for years people have asked me what Oprah smells like after that experience because I was close enough to sniff her. What did but, she smell uh, like? Amazing. She smelled like wealth. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Rub some wealth of that on me. Yep. Yeah, but it was I Still to this day, it's a pinch me moment. Really can't believe that it happened, but it opened so many doors for us. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, I was still snail mail Sarah trying to get this organization off the ground. And after that Oprah appearance, we were getting 100 emails a day. Oh and my God. that's really where it started to build. And that all started just by you sending out 100 letters from my dining room table in Bettendorf, Iowa. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And I've referenced this a few times now, but the Ted talk too. the Ted talk came after Oprah, right? Several years after. Yeah. Okay. And so how did that opportunity come about? My mom has a great saying that she reminds me of all the time. And it's The only difference between people who have TED Talks and people who don't 
is that the people who have TED Talks raised their hand. Mm. So I decided that a TED Talk was a sort of bucket list career goal for me. And I named it and I claimed it and I started applying to different TED events. And I lucked out with getting one that was in my hometown, but it wasn't the only one that I've applied to. It's if you care about getting a TED talk, you have to be willing to throw your hat in the ring in different cities. A lot of people, TED hop, will travel to different TED events that they can get into. Um, But yeah, I just was at a point in my career where I had done a lot of sort of informal speaking and enjoyed the experience and wanted to make that a bigger component of my overall career was moving into thought leadership and all that kind of stuff. So that was back in 2019, early 2019 that I gave that TED talk and then the, I had about a year of trying to build a speaking career when the pandemic hit and then everything was on pause for a little while, but now it's starting to pick back up again. So again, at that same theme of just putting yourself out there, doing the hard work of pitching yourself, applying for different opportunities. So you get the speaking opportunity to do a TED Talk in your hometown. And Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to know what the preparation process was like. So first of all, you find out that you get it. How excited were you? I was very excited. Of course, the thing about a TED Talk is that You have the experience of delivering it live, but then you know that it's going to live digitally in perpetuity. There's pressure associated with that. You want to make sure that you know your material front. And there's also no notes with a TED Talk. There are strict guidelines associated with the TED brand that you don't really have any wiggle room on. So I couldn't have any notes or any kind of prompting or anything like that. I had a strict time limit. Most TED events have some kind of theme that they want your content to correlate with. I don't remember what the theme of my event was, but I'm sure it, I have no idea actually. But but yeah, so you have to take into consideration all of the guidelines for your particular TED event. And then it's about crafting your story. Speakers are writers, first and foremost. You have to have something to say. Yeah. So once you have your tight 10 or tight 15, depending on how much time you've given to give your talk, it's just about learning it, knowing it like the back of your hand. You want to not just practice until you get it right. You want to practice until you can't get it wrong. So that once you're on stage and you have the lights on you and the audience and all of that, you know your material so well that nothing can phase you or something very serious would have to happen in order for you to be phased. And that's how I approach all of my speaking engagements, whether it's something short like a 10, 15 minute TED talk or a 45 minute long keynote. It's all about just having really strong material, really grounding it in storytelling. That's another big thing. No, people don't really like to have a speaker get on stage and tell them what to do, right? It's a show, don't tell experience. You're there to entertain. You're there to inspire. You're not necessarily there to give folks a to-do list. And writing good material and then knowing your material. And that's really what it boils down to. 
I read a book, which I had mentioned to you, I think a few weeks ago, written by the curator of TED. And I remember in the book, he lays out the two ways that you can give a great talk. And one is to memorize it. So it's like the back of your hand, exactly what you're saying right now. You just know it so well that it's almost a part of you and that when you give the talk, you can really allow yourself to be authentic and to be loose because you know it's ingrained in your psyche. And then the other way is to wing it. And when he says wing it, he means, of course, you still prepare, like you prepare for your talk, but you just give yourself a little bit more flexibility on stage to say what comes up for you in the moment. And he presented these two different options of preparing for a talk in such a clear, simple, easy to understand way. And I remember just feeling so relieved when I read that book because it was like, wow, some of the best talks I've ever listened to have probably come as a result of just careful, meticulous memorization. And I think that is almost a relief, especially, I don't know if you're this way, but for me, I'm a writer. I love to have every word be intentional. I love to craft it so it makes sense. I feel less comfortable just winging it. Language is so important to me. So the notion that I have the ability to just memorize something that I've honed and crafted just feels like such a relief and an excitement to me. And then to hear you say that's how you approach public speaking and presenting is just to memorize. I think for other people, being able to have the flexibility to go on stage and just wing it and to say what comes up can be super liberating. For example, I know Crystal Enriquez, she's actually my former roommate, also went through PBA, was a PBA coach. She just recently did a talk for The Moth. And she had a few ideas of what she was going to say, but it was not memorized. And for her, that style seems to work really well for her. I don't know, maybe you can speak to that. How, what's it like sitting down to memorizing, memorize a talk? What does that process look like for you? Why do you think that works the best for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have slightly different approaches depending on the kind of public speaking engagement it is. If it is just, I'm on a stage delivering a, a talk like a TED talk or a keynote, I like to have everything completely memorized because that's what enables me to be most present. In my speaking business, I'm often delivering the same talk over and over again. So I want to be present enough when I'm on stage that I can sense when I'm losing people, when folks are most engaged, so I can continue to improve my talk each time I give it. When I'm delivering a workshop or a seminar or something that, or doing an interview like this one, obviously this is not scripted. This is, that's when you get to have a little bit more fun and wing it and be more responsive to what's coming up in the moment, what questions you're getting from your attendees or your audience, things like that. But when it comes to keynote style speaking, for me, I think about it as a performance. I think about it the same way that a stand-up comedian or a Broadway performer would memorize lines and bring something to an audience. So I'm thinking about cadence. I'm thinking about 
tone, I'm thinking about what I want to emphasize and where I want to really pause and let something linger, where I want to inject some levity. Those are all things that I feel like I have more freedom to do when I know the material forwards and backwards, right? I just feel like when I'm winging it, yes, it might seem a little bit more natural and spontaneous, but ultimately it's for me distracting when I'm so focused on what I have to say rather than how I want to say it. How long do you think it typically takes on average? For me to have 45 minutes memorized and for me to feel really confident, I need bare minimum a week. Wow. And in that week, I need a lot of free time. I need to clear the decks to study, memorize. Ideally, I like to have more like two, two and a half weeks to really feel like I'm natural with it. But the key to memorization is to take it for me. I take it one page at a time. So I memorize a page. Once I have that page memorized, Mm -hmm. then I go to the second page. Then I have to be able to give just those two pages. And then I go on to the third page and so on and so forth until I know the whole thing that I find is the most effective efficient way to get through material. So I was practicing this morning. I have the first four pages of an eight page talk memorized. So because I was doing it today, I could give the first four pages today, but the second four pages are not even close to being (laughs) committed to memory yet. So that's typically how I go about it. Yeah. It's like with life, one step at a time. I think about also designing a website. It's one page of the website at a time. So that's helpful. Okay. Yeah. And I think people don't give themselves enough credit for how much they can really memorize. Yes. You really can. If a Broadway performer can memorize an entire three hours of dialogue or even performers that are just monologuing, but same thing with comedians or any stage performer, then you can memorize 10 minutes. You can memorize what you need to do most often for work, for content, for anything that you might be doing more in your day-to-day life. Yeah, I think it's so true. I think for whatever reason, having to memorize something, it brings us back to our academic days, perhaps, of memorizing stuff for a test or something. But it's definitely different, especially when the talk is you're giving a talk on something you're truly passionate and excited about. Yeah, that's really helpful. And for a lot of people who are building their personal brand, public speaking is up there on the things that they want to do, thought leadership. And so what would you say to someone who does want to incorporate more public speaking opportunities into their overall brand strategy, but haven't yet gotten started? Where's a good place to start? I think a good place to start with public speaking is getting comfortable on your own, either speaking direct to camera, if you're putting something together for a piece of content that you're creating. I also think it really just starts with writing. It's so much easier to be a confident speaker when you have good material, like the material is half the battle. And once you have that, then you're golden, right? Then you can start applying for industry events, conferences, things like that. You can start lending your talents to local organizations. There's so many ways that you can build out 
a public speaking component of your career, even if it's just starting small or local or just for you. But I really think that having something to say is number one. one. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mentioned on my Instagram stories that whenever I get ready to give a presentation, whether that's on Zoom or in person, I still struggle with intense nervousness and anxiety. I'm curious how you deal with any nerves if you get nervous before a talk. So I am one of the strange few that doesn't tend to get very nervous. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) It's so funny. I was talking to a friend and lamenting, oh, it's just, it's a tough business to break into because everyone wants to be a speaker. And she looked at me and said, what? No. She said, nobody wants to be a speaker. Like speaking is right up there with like top fears for people with like death. (laughs) And I was like, oh gosh, yeah. We all have the tendency to believe that because we want to do something, everyone wants to do something. But I will get anticipatory anxiety maybe a week, a few days before a talk. But once I am physically walking onto the stage, I feel like I'm in the zone. I feel like a professional athlete, like this is it's game time. And I know exactly what I need to do. I know exactly how to turn it on. I know exactly what's expected of me. And I've been like that probably because I did so much public speaking as a youth in the early days of generation Mm -hmm. spirit. But I think if you are nervous, all the more reason to rehearse, rehearse practice and remember that the audience is rooting for you. Nobody wants to sit through a mediocre speaker everyone is there they and they know how vulnerable it is they've all they're all thinking man i don't want to be that person no, on the stage. exactly yeah so they're rooting for you they want you to do a good job they most audiences are friendly and especially if we're talking about sort of professional events and things like that like everyone wants you to succeed so They're not trying to pick you apart. They're not trying to, they're all invested in this being a positive experience, just like you are. So for first time speakers that are really wigged out that something's not going to work out, I just try to remind them, yeah, everyone, everyone is rooting for you in that room. I love that. That's very helpful to remember. What do you think is one way that you allow yourself to be authentic in your writing and in your speaking? How do you let your authentic self shine? For me, authenticity is always grounded in personal storytelling. I really try to focus on, okay, just very matter of fact, direct. What was my experience of this? What was my genuine reaction in this moment? What was my journey rather than thinking about what do I think people want to hear from me or what do I think my story should sound like? My story is what it is. My organization is what it is. My brother is who he is. And the more that I can just very factually deliver the events, the experiences that we've had over the last 15 years, the more captivated audiences are. Again, it's when you start to get into, I did this, which means that you should do this. 
is when you start to lose people, just keeping it really grounded in here's what I did. Here's what I wish I had done differently. Here's how I would do it if I had the chance to do it again. And that's Mm. what keeps people hooked. Yeah. It's just down to the roots to what really happened. Just saying things almost simply without a lot of extra fluff. Yeah. Because if you're too directive with your audience, it's actually harder for them to see themselves in your story. Yeah. You need to let them fill in the blanks of, of what's relatable to them and where they fit into the big scheme of things. Yeah. I think so many times I've noticed that in my writing, I've been trying to be more aware of this, but it's so easy to want to inflate or to make things sound different from how they actually were. And it's half the time it's unconscious. We don't even realize that we're doing it. But it's such a helpful skill to be able to look at a piece of writing or a talk that we're crafting and actually whittle down the language to get to what am I actually trying to say? What actually happened? And then how do we deliver that in the most easy to understand way as possible? Yes. It's all about specificity, right? That's the other thing. Whenever folks start to get too abstract, no one knows what you're talking about anymore. Let's bring it back to what happened. What are people to get out of this? And what are you going to give them next? Exactly. And it's hard to do that because it's vulnerable because to just let things be exposed for what they are, it's almost like walking out naked. It's just, it's so scary because without the extra words or the extra fluff, then things just are as they seem. And that can be really terrifying, but such a noble act of courage, I think, because it you're right, it does allow people to see themselves in your story. And then they can connect with you on a deeper level and feel moved by what you're saying instead of confused by what they're what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Last question for you. What does having an authentic personal brand mean to you? I love that question. I think to me, having an authentic personal brand, what I have aimed to accomplish since my PBA graduation is that whenever someone lands on my website or my Instagram or my TikTok, that they are walking away with a true sense of who I am, that they are getting a little bit of my professional expertise, but they're also getting a little bit of my sense of humor, of my aesthetic, of my overall vibe. Like I just want people, as I am working to bring on new clients, I want them to know right away whether or not I'm a cultural fit for their organization or their group and I want that to come through when they visit my little corner of the internet. And I feel like PBA gave me the tools to do that. It's still an ongoing process, right? Because our stories continue to evolve and change and our tastes and our opinions all continue to evolve and change. It's never done, but I feel an immense comfort knowing that if someone's interested in working with me, that what they see is what they get. It's so much easier to live that way and to just vet out the right opportunities from the get-go, from the not right opportunities. Yes. That's great. And you do that so well. I can say with total certainty that when I look at your TikTok or your Instagram or hear you speak, I do feel like I'm getting a sense of who you are. So I learned from the best. Thank you for coming on, Sarah. (laughs) Thank you.